This is the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 18th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. There's a story in my family which gets retold nearly every time we go on a road trip. And the story goes like this. On one particularly long family road trip when I was about nine or ten years old, my younger brother, who was at that time about five or six, kept asking the question I'm certain every parent everywhere has also heard repeated ad nauseum whilst trapped in a vehicle smelling of sweaty feet and potato chips careening down some interstate or highway in the summer heat. And that question is, of course, you can probably guess it, are we there yet. In fact, my brother repeated this question so often that at times barely five minutes had passed before he was asking it again. My parents, realizing that continuing to give an answer to a child who had little concept of time was an exercise in futility, decided that they had had enough of this game and that no matter how much longer we actually did have until we arrived at our destination, they were going to answer two more hours. Four hours or 45 minutes and everything in between, it mattered not. The answer was always two more hours. Even now, some 30 years later, I can tell you that if you're ever on a road trip with Dan and Nova and wonder when you'll arrive at your destination, don't even bother to ask. It's two more hours. Children, especially very young children, seem specially equipped with a cachet of questions guaranteed to annoy, stump, and sometimes render catatonic the adults of whom the questions are asked. Is the moon made of cheese? Why can't I see my eyes? Why don't crabs have eyebrows? Where do thoughts come from? What's funny is that the questions are not presented with an agenda of annoyance or bewilderment or speechlessness. On the contrary, young children ask questions because they lack the capacity for manipulation. So their questions are a true and honest attempt to simply make sense of the world around them. The only agenda to their questions is to define reality, to give context to the world as they encounter it. In reading today's gospel, context is everything. 
If we read the text lazily, we think the lesson, the nugget of truth, is obvious. Be humble, and you'll be justified before God. Simple, right? Not so fast. You see, if we read this small selection of text without carefully considering its context, its reality, we're in big trouble. About this text, pastor and theologian David Lowe's wrote, Whenever a parable seems this clear, this simple, and this straightforward, I figure we'd better not trust it. There are a lot of agendas going on here, and the lesson which seems the most obvious is actually a trap. Again, context is everything. The first context we must consider is the one in which the text originated. Remember that this is a gospel account. If you were a student in my former third grade grammar class, we'd be discussing the fact that this story is written in the third person limited point of view. It is an outside retelling of events, but from someone's particular perspective and not free of the author's agenda or biases. Consider also that writing tools in the first century were expensive and scarce. If you were able to procure a scroll, tablet, anything on which to write, you used every square spare centimeter to record everything, often writing in margins and making corrections anywhere you could find room. When your writing was then copied tens of thousands of times over the centuries, scribes and translators would frequently insert their own judgment, bias, or agenda in an attempt to make the text correct. Like a game of telephone played out on papyrus, the texts we read today are not necessarily the exact text which was originally written. This leads us to the second context, which is the entire section in which today's verses are located. Given the fact that the first English Bible divided into chapters and verses wasn't published until 1560, it's irresponsible for us to try to suss out one nugget of truth from these verses. It simply wasn't meant to be read in a way which cuts it off from connection to the text surrounding it. We must read it together with and in light of the rest of the chapter. And if we were to name a theme for chapter 18, the most accurate one would probably be, and not ironically, the kingdom of God looks like blank. The kingdom of God is God's purpose, perspective, initiative, and intention. It is God's divine agenda. The third context we must consider is the writer's bias or agenda. While we don't know his real name, we call him Luke. We know Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew, writing to other non-Jews. And the disparate portrayals of the two characters in the story, the Pharisee and the tax collector, belie a deep prejudice against Jews. It's interesting to note that the gospel writer John bore the same prejudice at one point calling Jews children of the devil. Yikes. From the start of his gospel account, Luke gives Pharisees, i.e. fundamentalist Jews, a bad rap. 
even though Jesus himself was thoroughly Jewish, and all of his teachings are rooted in the Torah and prophetic Jewish, Jewish tradition. Jesus' teachings were not against Judaism, nor were they anti-Jewish. So when we read Luke's gospel's prejudiced portrayal of the Pharisee as bad, we might ask Luke, what gives? The work of making the Pharisee look bad isn't hard. You see, as religious fundamentalists, Pharisees took their convictions seriously. Because of their laser-focused attention to oral tradition and interpreting the spirit of the Torah, the Pharisees played an essential role in the theological and spiritual continuity of Judaism. In reality, they were not understood as legalistic, rigid, and elitist as they are often portrayed. The ancient Jewish historian and priest Josephus described actual Pharisees as living meagerly and shunning excess. Further, according to Jewish practice, the Pharisee was righteous, going above and beyond customary requirements of fasting and giving. The Pharisee's agenda wasn't to make Jesus look foolish, but to faithfully live out the convictions of his beliefs. The problem here is that the Pharisee's agenda is still about himself. So now Luke, and thus we, the reader, have judged the Pharisee to be bad, and in doing so we have also effectively prejudged the tax collector to be good. But is he? Sure, the tax collector appears pious with his chest beating and God have mercy on me because I am a sinner, but nowhere in his request for God's mercy does he repent of his shady tax collecting practices. Nowhere do we see him pledge to return all that he has cheated from his neighbors. Nowhere do we see a commitment to live a changed life when oriented in God's agenda. On the contrary, where the Pharisee leads a meager existence, this tax collector most likely lived lavishly off the money, land, and animals he stole from the community. It's probably accurate to envision a first-century version of MTV's Cribs. Not unlike the rock stars, social media influencers, and athletes featured in each episode with warehouse-sized garages stocked with rows of luxury cars, each costing more than the average price of a home in Johnson County, the tax collector needed a warehouse for his stolen gold. Like the mega mansions and designer duds featured in Cribs, the tax collector's home was the biggest in town, his clothes the most expensive money could buy, and his home furnishings most likely ill-gotten. This man had no intention of pulling back his dishonest tax collecting ways. Like other tax collectors we've met across the Gospels, Matthew, Zacchaeus, his agenda was also solely focused on himself. He was a fleecer and a traitor. His religion was Rome, and his piety was excess. Two weeks ago in children's chat, the children and I were discussing the story of the healing of the ten lepers, which appears in chapter 17. We talked about how these men were kicked out of their homes, their town, and their lives 
separated from the love and care and health and their well-being because of their disease. They were sent away from family and friends. They were removed from community. I asked them to imagine what that must have been like, what it must have felt like. Then I asked them to imagine how incredible it must have been to have been healed, to be restored to all that love and care and health and community, to be embraced once more by their family and friends. I asked the children to imagine that this is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is when everyone can participate in and experience love, safety, health, well-being, and community. We talked about this as being close to God's heart. We observed together that when the man when came back to thank Jesus, his actions moved him toward God's heart because his actions reflected God's love, God's agenda, just as Jesus' action of restoring all the men reflected God's love and agenda. You see, when we participate in the work of restoration, we are close to God's heart, reflecting God's agenda. At the very beginning of chapter 18, in verse 1, Luke writes, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. Pray always and don't lose heart. Pray and keep the faith. Pray and stay close to God's heart. While Luke seems to try to create a dichotomy of good and bad illustrated in the characters of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I would argue that reading this text that way is simply wrong. Both men are mired in religious fundamentalism. The Pharisee in the selfish desire to exercise his religious practices to extremes and the tax collector to selfishly abuse his power and position to excess. Nadia Bowles-Weber said it best when she wrote, maybe the opposite of religious fundamentalism isn't strident atheism or liberalism. Maybe the opposite of fundamentalism is humility. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector missed this. Sure, they prayed. With their bloviating and chest beating, they prayed, but they did nothing to move closer to God's heart to God's agenda. For the Pharisee will continue in his shrewd and narrow living, and the tax collector will continue in obscene excess with never a care to orient their efforts for the good of the entire community. They will continue in self-aggrandizement for their own sakes, and they will miss the incredible richness that comes from the humility of putting someone else first. In Jesus, the old ways of assessing value are no more. With his advent, Jesus ushers in the complete and radical reversal of human judgment. In other words, Jesus has brought about a reality, a context, wherein we 
all are called not just to recognize our own limited humanity, but to truly see the humanity in others and actively participate in bringing about the good life God intends for all the world. This is true humility. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector miss this, for their prayers and actions serve only themselves. Righteousness, true justification, comes when, in humility and honor of the humanity of others, we do the work about bringing about justice on behalf of another. Just like the judge brought justice to the woman earlier in this chapter, just like Jesus brought restoration to the ten lepers, just like every time someone is restored or raised to a better station in life. This is what it is to be humble. This is what it is to be close to God's heart. The kingdom of God looks like this. Two weeks from now, our sixth, seventh, and eighth graders will spend about 24 hours here as we kick off an entirely new, entirely unique program for affirmation of baptism or confirmation. We call it embodied baptism. At its core, confirmation is a young person's opportunity to say yes to their baptism. To say yes to their participation in the lived experience of being part of the baptized body of Christ. What does that look like, you might ask? Well, I can show you. Reach out in front of you, in your pew, and grab that red book, the ELW, and open it to page 228 in the front. Not the hymn, the page. On that page, you will find the order for holy baptism. When parents and sponsors bring a child for baptism, we entrust them with responsibilities, which the church supports them in doing. In the middle of the page, there's that full paragraph, and it says, parents and sponsors, you're charged with responsibilities. You see that? With the help of the congregation, parents and, and sponsors are charged with the responsibility of living with their children among God's faithful people, that's you. Bringing their children to the word of God and the Holy Supper will do that today. To teach them the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, and the Ten Commandments. To place in their hands the Holy Scriptures and nurture their children in faith and prayer. They and we do all of these things so that children will learn to do the next section, which says, trust God, proclaim Christ through word and deed, care for others and the world God made, and work for justice and peace in all the world. That right there, that is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it means to be truly humble. And if you were baptized and confirmed in the Lutheran Church, you said yes to this too. You said yes to trusting God. You said yes to proclaiming Christ in everything you do and say. You said yes to caring for others and the world God made. You said yes to working for justice and peace. 
You said yes to full participation in the kingdom of God so that others might be raised to a better place in life. To encounter directly the love of God as you have experienced the love of God. And that is the way of the humble. That is true humility. That is God's agenda. So the next time you encounter a text with a lesson so seemingly obvious that reading it feels simple, give that text some side eye. Ask it annoying questions. Challenge the agenda of the writer, but most importantly, find the call of God in the words. Remember your baptism and your yes to the kingdom of God, to God's divine agenda. Look around and ask. Are we there yet? The answer is, we're not. Not yet. It'll probably take longer than two more hours, but together, by the grace of God, we will get there. Amen.